Chapter Thirty of *The Man in the Iron Mask* by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prisoner, Part Two. Aramis gathered himself up, and a shade of deep solemnity spread itself over his countenance. It was evident that he had reached the crisis in the part he had come to the prison to play. One question," said Aramis. "What is it? Speak." In the house you inhabited there were neither looking-glasses nor mirrors. "'What are those two words, and what is their meaning?' asked the young man. "'I have no sort of knowledge of them.' "'They designate two pieces of furniture which reflect objects, so that, for instance, you may see in them your own lineaments, as you see mine now, with the naked eye.' "'No, there was neither a glass nor a mirror in the house,' answered the young man. Aramis looked round him. "'Nor is there anything of the kind here either,' he said. "'They have again taken the same precaution.' "'To what end?' "'You will know directly. Now, you have told me that you were instructed in mathematics, astronomy, fencing, and riding, but you have not said a word about history.' my tutor sometimes related to me the principal deeds of the king st louis king francis i and king henry the fourth is that all very nearly this also was done by design then just as they deprived you of mirrors which reflect the present so they left you in ignorance of history which reflects the past since your imprisonment books have been forbidden you so that you are unacquainted with a number of facts, by means of which you would be able to reconstruct the shattered mansion of your recollections and your hopes. "'It is true,' said the young man. "'Listen, then. I will in a few words tell you what has passed in France during the last twenty-three or twenty-four years, that is, from the probable date of your birth, in a word, from the time that interests you.' say on and the young man resumed his serious and attentive attitude do you know who was the son of henry the fourth at least i know who his successor was how by means of a coin dated sixteen ten which bears the effigy of henry the fourth and another of sixteen twelve bearing that of louis the thirteenth so i presume that there being only two years between the two dates louis was henry's successor then said aramis you know that the last reigning monarch was louis the thirteenth i do answered the youth slightly reddening well he was a prince full of noble ideas and great projects always alas deferred by the trouble of the times and the dread struggle that his minister richelieu had to maintain against the great nobles of france the king himself was of a feeble character and died young and unhappy i know it he had been long anxious about having an heir a care which weighs heavily on princes who desire to leave behind them more than one pledge that their best thoughts and works will be continued did the king then die childless 
asked the prisoner, smiling. No, but he was long without one, and for a long while thought he should be the last of his race. This idea had reduced him to the depths of despair when suddenly his wife, Anne of Austria. The prisoner trembled. Did you know, said Aramis, that Louis XIII's wife was called Anne of Austria? Continue, said the young man without replying to the question. When suddenly, resumed Aramis, the queen announced an interesting event. There was great joy at the intelligence, and all prayed for their happy delivery. On the 5th of September, 1638, she gave birth to a son. Here Aramis looked at his companion, and thought he observed him turning pale. "'You are about to hear,' said Aramis, "'an account which few indeed could now avouch, "'for it refers to a secret which they imagined buried with the dead.' entombed in the abyss of the confessional and you will tell me this secret broke in the youth oh said aramis with unmistakable emphasis i do not know that i ought to risk this secret by entrusting it to one who has no desire to quit the bastille i hear you monsieur the queen then gave birth to a son but while the court was rejoicing over the event, when the king had shown the newborn child to the nobility and people, and was sitting gaily down to table to celebrate the event, the queen, who was alone in her room, was again taken ill and gave birth to a second son. "'Oh!' said the prisoner, betraying a better acquaintance with affairs than he had owned to. "'I thought that monsieur was only born in—' Aramis raised his finger. "'Permit me to continue,' he said. The prisoner sighed impatiently and paused. "'Yes,' said Aramis. "'The queen had a second son, whom Dame Perronette, the midwife, received in her arms.' "'Dame Perronette,' murmured the young man. They ran at once to the banqueting-room, and whispering to the king what had happened— he rose and quitted the table, but this time it was no longer happiness that his face expressed, but something akin to terror. The birth of twins changed into bitterness the joy to which that of an only son had given rise, seeing that in France, a fact you are assuredly ignorant of, it is the oldest of the king's son who succeeds his father. I know it. And that... The doctors and jurists assert that there is no ground for doubting whether the son that first makes his appearance is the elder by law of heaven and of nature. The prisoner uttered a smothered cry and became whiter than the coverlet under which he hid himself. Now you understand, pursued Aramis, that the king, who with so much pleasure saw himself repeated in one, was in despair about two fearing that the second might dispute the first claim to seniority, which had been recognized only two hours before. And so this second son, relying on party interests and caprices, might one day sow discord and engender civil war throughout the kingdom. By these means, destroying the very dynasty he should have strengthened. Oh, 
I understand. I understand, murmured the young man. Well, continued Aramis, this is what they relate, what they declare. This is why one of the queen's two sons, shamefully parted from his brother, shamefully sequestered, is buried in profound obscurity. This is why that second son has disappeared, and so completely, that not a soul in France save his mother is aware of his existence. Yes, his mother, who has cast him off, cried the prisoner in a tone of despair. Except also, Aramis went on, the lady in the black dress, and finally, excepting, excepting yourself, is it not? You who come and relate all this, you who rouse in my soul curiosity, hatred, ambition, and perhaps even the thirst of vengeance, except you, monsieur, who, if you are the man to whom I expect, whom the note I have received applies to, whom, in short, heaven ought to send me, must possess about you. What? asked Aramis. A portrait of the King Louis the Fourteenth, who at this moment reigns upon the throne of France. Here is the portrait, replied the bishop, handing the prisoner a miniature in enamel on which Louis was depicted lifelike with a handsome lofty mien. The prisoner eagerly seized the portrait and gazed at it with devouring eyes. And now, Monseigneur, said Aramis, here is a mirror. Aramis left the prisoner time to recover his ideas. So high, so high, murmured the young man, eagerly comparing the likeness of Louis with his own countenance reflected in the glass. What do you think of it? At length said Aramis. I think that I am lost, replied the captive. The king will never set me free. And I, I demand to know, added the bishop, fixing his piercing eyes significantly upon the prisoner. I demand to know which of these two is king, the one this miniature portrays, or whom the glass reflects. The king, monsieur, sadly replied the young man, is he who is on the throne, who is not in prison, and who, on the other hand, can cause others to be entombed there. Royalty means power, and you behold how powerless I am. Monseigneur, answered Aramis with a respect he had not yet manifested. The king, mark me, will, if you desire it, be the one that, quitting his dungeon, shall maintain himself upon the throne on which his friends will place him. Tempt me not, monsieur, broke in the prisoner bitterly. Be not weak, monseigneur, persisted Aramis. I have brought you all the proofs of your birth. Consult them. Satisfy yourself that you are a king's son. It is for us to act. No, no, it is impossible. Unless indeed, resumed the bishop ironically, it be the destiny of your race 
that the brothers excluded from the throne should be always princes void of courage and honesty, as was your uncle, Monsieur Gaston d'Orléans, who ten times conspired against his brother Louis the Thirteenth. "'What?' cried the prince, astonished. "'My uncle Gaston conspired against his brother, conspired to dethrone him?' "'Exactly, Monseigneur. For no other reason, I tell you the truth.' and he had friends devoted friends as much so as i am to you and after all what did he do failed he failed i admit but always through his own fault and for the sake of purchasing not his life but for the life of the king's brother is sacred and inviolable but his liberty he sacrificed the lives of all his friends, one after another, and so, at this day, he is a very blot on history, the detestation of a hundred noble families in this kingdom. I understand, monsieur, either by weakness or treachery, my uncle slew his friends. By weakness, which in princes is always treachery and cannot a man fail then from incapacity and ignorance do you really believe it possible that a poor captive such as i brought up not only at a distance from the court but even from the world do you believe it possible that such a one could assist those of his friends who should attempt to serve him and as aramis was about to reply the young man suddenly cried out with a violence which betrayed the temper of his blood we are speaking of friends but how can i have any friends i whom no one knows and have neither liberty money nor influence to gain any i fancy i had the honour to offer myself to your royal highness oh do not style me so monsieur tis either treachery or cruelty bid me not think of aught beyond these prison walls which so grimly confine me let me again love, or at least submit to my slavery and my obscurity. Monseigneur, Monseigneur, if you again utter these desperate words, if, after having received proof of your high birth, you still remain poor-spirited in body and soul, I will comply with your desire. I will depart and renounce forever the service of a master to whom so eagerly I came to devote my assistance and my life. Monsieur, cried the prince, would it not have been better for you to have reflected, before telling me all that you have done, that you have broken my heart for ever? And so I desire to do, Monseigneur. To talk to me about power, grandeur, I, and to prate of thrones? Is a prison the fit place? You wish to make me believe in splendor, and we are lying lost in night. You boast of glory, and we are smothering our words in the curtains of this miserable bed. You give me glimpses of power absolute, whilst I hear the footsteps of the every watchful jailer in the corridor, that step which, after all, makes you tremble more than it does me. To render me somewhat less incredulous, free me from the Bastille let me breathe the fresh air give me my spurs and trusty sword 
then we shall begin to understand each other it is precisely my intention to give you all this monseigneur and more only do you desire it a word more said the prince i know there are guards in every gallery bolts to every door cannon and soldiery at every barrier how will you overcome the sentries spike the guns how will you break through the bolts and bars monseigneur did you get the note which announced my arrival to you you can bribe a jailer for such a thing as a note if we can corrupt one turnkey we can corrupt ten well i admit that it may be possible to release a poor captive from the bastille possible so to conceal him that the king's people shall not again ensnare him possible in some unknown retreat to sustain the unhappy wretch in some suitable manner monseigneur said aramis smiling i admit that whoever would do this much for me would seem more than mortal in my eyes but as you tell me i am a prince brother of the king how can you restore me the rank and power which my mother and my brother have deprived me of and as to effect this i must pass a life of war and hatred how can you cause me to prevail in those combats render me invulnerable by my enemies ha, monsieur reflect on all this place me to-morrow in some dark cavern at a mountain's base yield me the delight of hearing in freedom sounds of the river plain and valley of beholding in freedom the sun of the blue heavens or the stormy sky and it is enough promise me no more than this for indeed more you cannot give and it would be a crime to deceive me since you call yourself my friend aramis waited in silence monseigneur he resumed after a moment's reflection i admire the firm sound sense which dictates your words i am happy to have discovered my monarch's mind again again oh god for mercy's sake cried the prince pressing his icy hands upon his clammy brow do not play with me i have no need to be a king to be the happiest of men but i monseigneur wish you to be a king for the good of humanity huh, said the prince with fresh distrust inspired by the word with what then has humanity to reproach my brother i forgot to say monseigneur that if you would allow me to guide you and if you consent to become the most powerful monarch in christendom you will have promoted the interests of all the friends whom i devote to the success of your cause and these friends are numerous numerous less numerous than powerful monseigneur explain yourself it is impossible i will explain i swear before heaven on that day that i see you sitting on the throne of france but my brother you shall decree his fate do you pity him him who leaves me to perish in a dungeon no no for him i have no pity so much the better he might have himself come to this prison have taken me by the hand and have said my brother heaven created us to love not to contend with one another i come to you 
a barbarous prejudice has condemned you to pass your days in obscurity far from mankind deprived of every joy i will make you sit down beside me i will buckle round your waist our father's sword will you take advantage of this reconciliation to put down or restrain me will you employ that sword to spill my blood oh never i would have replied to him i look on you as my preserver i will respect you as my master you give me far more than heaven bestowed for through you i possess liberty and the privilege of loving and being loved in this world and you would have kept your word monseigneur on my life while now now that i have guilty ones to punish in what manner monseigneur what do you say as to the resemblance that heaven has given me to my brother i say that there was in that likeness a providential instruction which the king ought to have heeded i say that your mother committed a crime in rendering those different in happiness and fortune whom nature created so startlingly alike of her own flesh and i conclude that the object of punishment should be only to restore the equilibrium by which you mean that if i restore you to your place on your brother's throne he shall take yours in prison alas there's such infinity of suffering in prison especially it would be so for one who has drunk so deeply of the cup of enjoyment your royal highness will always be free to act as you may desire and if it seems good to you after punishment you will have it in your power to pardon good and now are you aware of one thing monsieur tell me my prince it is that i will hear nothing further from you till i am clear of the bastille i was going to say to your highness that i should only have the pleasure of seeing you once again and when the day when my prince leaves these gloomy walls heavens how will you give me notice of it by myself coming to fetch you yourself my prince do not leave this chamber save with me or if in my absence you are compelled to do so remember that i am not concerned in it and so i am not to speak a word of this to any one whatever save you save only to me aramis bowed very low the prince offered his hand monsieur he said in a tone that issued from his heart one word more my last if you have sought me for my destruction if you are only a tool in the hands of my enemies if from our conference in which you have sounded the depths of my mind anything worse than captivity result that is to say if death befall me still receive my blessing for you will have ended my troubles and given me repose from the tormenting fever that has preyed on me for eight long weary years monseigneur wait the results ere you judge me said aramis i say that in such a case i bless and forgive you if on the other hand you are come to restore me to that position in the sunshine of fortune and glory to which i was destined by heaven and if by your means i am enabled to live in the memory of man and confer lustre on my race by deeds of valour 
but by solid benefits bestowed upon my people if from my present depths of sorrow aided by your generous hand i raise myself to the very height of honor then to you whom i thank with blessings to you will i offer half my power and my glory though you would still be but partly recompensed and your share must always remain incomplete since i could not divide with you the happiness received at your hands monseigneur replied aramis moved by the pallor and excitement of the young man the nobleness of your heart fills me with joy and admiration it is not you who will have to thank me but rather the nation whom you will render happy the posterity whose name you will make glorious yes i shall indeed have bestowed upon you more than life i shall have given you immortality the prince offered his hand to aramis who sank upon his knee and kissed it it is the first act of homage paid to our future king said he when i see you again i shall say good day sire till then said the young man pressing his wan and wasted fingers over his heart till then no more dreams no more strain on my life my heart would break oh monsieur how small is my prison how low the window how narrow are the doors to think that so much pride splendor and happiness should be able to enter in and to remain here your royal highness makes me proud said aramis since you infer it is i who brought all this and he rapped immediately on the door the jailer came to open it with baisemeaux who devoured by fear and uneasiness was beginning in spite of himself to listen at the door happily neither of the speakers had forgotten to smother his voice even in the most passionate outbreaks what a confessor said the governor forcing a laugh who would believe that a compulsory recluse a man as though in the very jaws of death could have committed crimes so numerous and so long to tell of aramis made no reply he was eager to leave the bastille where the secret which overwhelmed him seemed to double the weight of the walls. As soon as they reached Baisemeaux's quarters, "'Let us proceed to business, my dear governor,' said Aramis. "'Alas!' replied Baisemeaux. "'You have to ask me for my receipt for one hundred and fifty thousand livres,' said the bishop. "'And to pay over the first third of the sum.' added the poor governor with a sigh taking three steps toward his iron strong-box here is the receipt said aramis and here is the money returned baisemeaux with a threefold sigh the order instructed me only to give a receipt it said nothing about receiving the money rejoined aramis adieu monsieur le governeur and he departed leaving baisemeaux almost more than stifled with joy and surprise at this regal present so liberally bestowed by the confessor extraordinary to the bastille end of chapter thirty recording by john van stan savannah georgia